Hi, this is Delegate Eric Ludke, Majority Leader of the Maryland House of Delegates, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties and one of the best sources for dad jokes in the entire state of Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, back on Conduit Street. I don't know. I can't remember if we were here before. I think we were here last week, but it's it's hard to remember, right? right? (laughs) But it's good to be back in the office with you. Quite an intro there by uh, House Majority Leader Eric Lukey, and maybe a shot at you. I mean, listen, okay, the good delegate in good fun seems to accuse me of being a purveyor of dad jokes, which... For my demographic, we just call them jokes. Right. (laughs) Right. Anyway, I I mean, I will say it's in good fun and he means no harm. Uh, Do I take a little tiny offense at that? I really don't think that's my brand. I I would like to think that my sense of humor is relatively sophisticated and palatable and and not just corny. But I mean, if if we want dad jokes, like I can, I can bring the heat that could become part of our brand here. Yeah. I mean, for all of our listeners, let us know if you're looking for more dad jokes. And if this is the place you come to find the dad jokes, let us know. And we can certainly beef it up. I mean, you know, a a few, few weeks ago, we did a special episode on the state of the podcast and we said, Hey, has anyone missed the Guam references and stuff? And there wasn't any hue and cry about sort of phasing out our love for Guam, which we still love Guam. Right. But, um, I, I don't know. I mean, if this is if this is what you want, we will give the people what they want. If they want dad jokes, let's hear it. All right. So let us know. Let us know. You can email us. You can find us on Twitter, social media, of course. Let us know if you want the dad jokes. Smash that button. right? Smash the, <laughs> smash the button. Yeah. Subscribe. Right. Like and subscribe. Comment. All that stuff. So, Michael, today on the podcast, we are going to get in to some of MAKO's legislative initiatives for the 2021 session. This is breaking news today as we sit here on Wednesday, September 16th. Our legislative committee just adopted MAKO's four priorities for the next session. Talk about that a little bit, Michael. What are we, what are we looking at for 2021? Well, I mean, none of this is going to be a shock that organization like ours – I mean, we, we talked last week about Everybody's gearing up for the 2021 session, even though we don't know what it's going to look like. And if you're smart, you're doing work on the front end to make January through whenever feel and work better. Right. So Mako's doing that, too. We've had a group meeting through the summer to talk about what are the top issues that Mako should put onto the radar of state officials. Where do we need help? Where do we need to play defense and so forth? So, you know, no surprise, this is all very much influenced by the current circumstance. So we know that as a health and fiscal issue, this pandemic is issue like one, two, and three. So we're in the middle of that. We know there's a possibility of budget cuts, particularly if the federal government doesn't find its way to take some action. We're worried about playing, you know, about being on our heels from state budget cuts. Playing some defense there and defending county budget security is a big overarching issue for us. Mm-hmm. And the rest of our list is all stuff that you can trace right back to the issues of the moment. So, you know, the, the idea of making sure we have resources for our public health infrastructure, our experts at both the, the county and state level, that they can be prepared, that they've got 
data systems that work and so forth. There's, there's a lot to be done on the public health front. Um, I think broadband for everybody and the homework gap, a phrase that I've only learned in the last month or so, but I think it's a reasonable descriptor of a problem we've mm-hmm, got. Mm-hmm. Okay, Maryland's not the only place, but we definitely have that problem. So we ought to move that up the priority list. Uh, and the thing we want to talk about today, we've, we've been through one weird election. We're about to go through another one-of-a-kind election affected by the health pandemic, but it has served to expose some of the weirdness in Maryland's laws over how do you administer and fund elections. And that's one of the things the counties want to tackle, too. Yeah, of course, public health, broadband, ensuring everybody has access to broadband. It's not just a rural issue. We know in every county we have, quote unquote, the homework gap, right? And that is a new term, but it does lend itself well. And I agree that all of these issues are really driven by this pandemic and and how we're reacting, protecting our constituents. But yes, we'll start today with ensuring funding fairness and county role in elections. And Michael, I think our plan over the next few episodes, we'll go through each initiative and sort of lay the groundwork for for what Mako's thinking in the 2021 session. Yeah. So first up, elections. And that puts you in the spotlight, Kevin. You're our policy lead for Mako. You work pretty closely with the Maryland Association of Election Officials. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the professionals on the ground who manage elections. So, so I mean, I'll be looking for you to help guide through some of this stuff and for our listeners to get an appreciation for sort of where are we and why does MAKO care so much? Right. So, and, and, you know, we've talked a lot about elections recently. You said we've already been through one weird election. We're approaching another one. But really, even though we've talked extensively about the process for 2020, this initiative is really about elections generally. So we have a state board of elections in Maryland, and they're really responsible for driving the policy of how elections are going to be run in the state, what kind of equipment we're going to use. And then we also have local boards of elections, and that is at the county level. And they're really the boots on the ground. When you think of elections, you think of election day. You think of showing up to your precinct, casting your ballot. All of those functions are done at the local level by the local boards of elections. So while we do have the state board that sort of oversees everything at the 30,000-foot level and drives the policy, it's really the locals on the ground that are administering these functions. When you show up on election day to vote, they're the ones that are there. Right. So you, you mentioned the local boards of election, and that's the decision-making body in each county, but there also are county employees who work for the board of election, but there'll be an election administrator or a similarly titled person in each county who may or may not have extra staff, but those are the people who really, you know, sort of run the show. Right. So again, it's a policy making, but the state has a board. They have their own professional staff and, and staff to the state board. And at the county, we have the same thing. So it's 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 those groups at the county level, the election board members, and in particular, election administrators who who are the you know the sort of the ones keeping the trains running on time. Right. <laughs> so they're the ones that take what the state tells them to do and figures out how to implement it and how to make it right. work for their local jurisdiction. Right. And it's a pretty common relationship to have a function that's kind of a hybrid state and local and that you have the overall policy for whatever reason you want uniformity across the state. So policy is set statewide Mm -hmm. and then implementation is local. I don't think we're here to criticize that setup. It works basically fine in a number of ways. I think the reason we're interested in legislation to remedy some problems is 
it, it, it's, it's due for a refresher. It's due for some more clarity. And you know, we're going to walk through some of the arguments for why we need to tidy this area up. I think that's a great way to put it. And I mean, when we talk about this initiative, there are a few major issues that we will be advocating for, and all of them have to do with transparency, with mm-hmm. fairness, with ensuring proper local input for decisions that oblige county funds, mm-hmm. right? We that's need to be responsible for, for those funds. That sounds like the Mako brand right, right there. Yeah. Right. It's on brand. It's very on brand. <laughs> but you know, one of the big things, first of all, is that the state board often makes these unilateral decisions that oblige county funds. And counties don't currently have a seat at the table, even though, as we mentioned earlier, counties are on the ground running these elections. And so once the state board makes a decision like that, they go ahead and let's say they're ordering a voting system or they're ordering whatever. They do that. And then the counties sort of get the bill, whether that's for half the Mm. cost or the full cost. And there's really not a seat at the table. There's not any way for counties, again, on the ground to come in and say, hey, this is why this is a good idea or a bad idea. Let me tell you how we do it in our county. And so we really think that it's important to have that seat at the table, again, especially when these decisions oblige county funds, which are ultimately taxpayer dollars. Right. So nothing new about MAKO or our sister association, the Maryland Municipal League, or groups like us sort of coming to state decision makers, the General Assembly or the governor and executive agencies, or sort of an independent agency like the State Board of Elections, and saying, we're wary of unfunded mandates, the Mm -hmm. policies being set at the state level, and then the cost has to show up through the county budgets. Right. And we don't think that's fair, or we at least want to be engaged as part of the decision to get to the thing that we have to pay for. So I think that's, you know, that's the centerpiece here. We see that an awful lot in the legislative process, mm-hmm. right? You and you and your colleagues on the MAKO policy team sit at the testimony table all the time and say, well, this, is, this seems like a nice idea, but if you're making counties pay for it, you know, we don't have those resources. You're already telling us to fund education in this big, robust way. We have these obligations to do public safety and maintain our infrastructure mm-hmm. and, and you know, so on and so forth down the list. And now you're going to tell us to do this new thing. We need resources to come with it. You know, this, this needs to be a state program and so forth. We say this stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. So, so this is kind of an echo of a familiar pitch from county governments that we need to be either at the table agreeing this is worth doing and it's worth spending money on, or we need this to be clarified that if the state's going to make decisions, the state needs to come up with the dollars to pay for them. And that's the flavor that we're pursuing here. That's right. I mean, that's one of the big issues. And I think, you know, when you think about elections in Maryland, we have these two entities, you know, you have the state and then you have the locals. It's meant to be a partnership. And what we're asking Mm -hmm. for for this seat at the table is let's make it a true partnership. But you're right. When you talk about unfunded mandates, I mean, without the resources to offset costs for equipment purchases and leases, storage, transportation, staff compensation, training. All of this overhead, these state-mandated policy decisions cost money at the local level, and without the resources, they do become unfunded mandates. And especially, you know, right now with the budget crises at the state and the local level, we need to make sure that at least we have a seat at the table to understand what's happening and to make sure that maybe there are some resources that come along with these decisions made by the state. Right. So, and and for the moment, um, I'm... I'm wary of this getting too tedious, but okay, our brand is maybe a little bit tedious. And dad jokes. Right, right, and dad jokes, maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Right. (laughs) But um, so when we say the state, um, I I mentioned us taking positions on legislation. And I can think of some big high-profile things over the last 
decade or two in elections that have been like this. Um, when, when the state said we want to move to having early voting, there was a cost component. Each mm-hmm. county is going to have to maintain these centers for multiple days. You're going to have to pay to keep the ballots secure for not just during the course of one day, but over the course of you know, eight or nine days or whatever that window is. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's transportation costs, staffing costs, and so forth. So the counties more or less ate those costs. We raised our grievances. You know, whether, whether or not they got tended to, that's part of a legislative process. If the state is going to pass a new piece of legislation, that's an open process already. There's a fiscal note written. You have an open consideration of who's going to pay for this. And then the state policymakers have to decide what to do. After hearing from the stakeholders. Right. Including right from us. everybody. So right. We've been at that table for all those considerations. So I, I mean, I think I understand this. That's not what we're focusing on here. Here, what we're talking about are sort of just at the implementation level when the state board of elections and their professional staff are making decisions that are going to eventually require us to hire new people, to buy more equipment, to cart stuff around or keep it secure or update our technology, blah, blah, blah. Then when they're making those decisions, that ought to be done in some collaborative way with a clear understanding of who's paying for it. As it, as the sign off happens, right? The partnership, right? Getting back yeah, to yeah. the partnership, and I think you know that's the theme with this initiative. And you know, Michael, speaking of that, I mean, you were around in two thousand and one. Right now, what we have is really vague language when it comes to some of these costs and how they're split up between the state and the counties. And again, this is a sentence that's buried in a bill somewhere. You were there for yeah. it. I mean, I mean, talk about that a little bit because the the idea is that when it comes to election equipment, the state and the counties split the cost. And, and that was the idea. But again, it's very vague. So, so talk about that a little bit. I mean, not, not to go over the deep end, but here's where we were. Um, the election of 2000, the presidential election was tumultuous. Uh, some of you all are too young to remember this, but this was a pretty big deal. We weren't quite sure who won the state of Florida, and that was going to determine who won the presidency uh, between Bush and Gore. And this ended up in the courts, it ended up in the headlines, and the country basically was wringing its hands for two or three good long weeks trying to sort out what really happened and what votes are we going to count, what are we going to recount and all sort of stuff. We learned about hanging Hanging chads, we learned about all these election judges and all these processes for verifying and validating and all this sort of stuff. It was a big, rapid education in the underbelly of democracy for lots of us, myself absolutely included. Mm -hmm. So in the wake of that, the federal government pretty quickly said, we don't like this idea that place by place, the the methods and the machines for casting your vote are so different. And there are some places that are using literally machines that are from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And, you know, if, if this mechanical lever just gets stuck and it doesn't have enough oil that that entire precinct has to shut down and those people are going to vote on napkins. In a way, I mean, you could compare that election and, and what it showed to sort of the pandemic now and what it's showing us for something like broadband, right? Actually, it really yeah. opens everyone's eyes to, oh, my gosh, this right. is a big problem and we better fix it. I think, I think that's apt. So the 2000 election was weird in that, in that sense. And this was back when Congress 
like suddenly smelled that people were upset about a problem and then they went and tried to tackle it. Imagine that. Imagine that. So Congress moved rather quickly Mm -hmm. and passed a law that I believe was the Help America Vote Act, H-A-V-A. We still talk about Mm -hmm. HAVA funds and HAVA laws and so forth. But they passed a federal law that had a bunch of different provisions, had a bag of money to help the, the, the states and their localities implement stuff. One of the things it said was, Every state needs to have a uniform system. The feds are not going to tell you what machine to use, but Maryland shouldn't have 24 systems for 24 counties. And heaven forbid Texas with their, you know, 180 or whatever. These places that have zillions of different decision makers have a statewide system. Which makes sense, right? I mean, you can understand why, especially on the heels of what happened in 2000, it it seems like, you know, they they made a decision that they thought is is going to really, really move the ball forward in terms of how we administer elections. Right. So Maryland sort of jumped to the front of that queue and said, we're going to go first and we're going to be rapid. We're going to adopt these on-screen voting machines and this is what we're going to do. We've already got the vendor picked out. It was a really, really convoluted circumstance in policy terms with, I mean, everybody twisting arms and so forth. But ultimately, a bill passed to say, that's what we're going to do. The state board is going to go through a procurement, but it's going to basically be on everybody's behalf. So Prince George's, Allegheny, St. Mary's, you're going to have to get rid of the systems you have and replace them with these awesome touchscreens. Right. In the process of doing that, there was a big question of who pays for it. And so... Uh, at Mako's behest, and we screamed and yelled and, and carried on about this, we secured a rider in that bill in uh, an uncodified language at the bottom of the bill, basically saying for for this kind of equipment, this should be a split responsibility. The state should pay for half and the county should pay for half. And I was telling everybody in the world I wanted a cap on the county costs. And I, you know, I was yelling and I was, I was doing everything I could. And we ended up having to just Take the deal, right. 50-50, that's as good as a deal as you're going to get. Right. But believe it or not, that little add-on sentence in the uncodified mm-hmm. section of law, what, what I mean by that is if, if you're a big shot in Annapolis and you order from the Mickey company the copies of the annotated code of Maryland, all these like maroon or red bound you know, volumes of law, if you've got those on shelves, you can't even find this law. Because it's not in the state law in that in the annotated right, code. Right. It's just in a chapter law somewhere. It's on the internet. It's in cyberspace. It's at the, it's at the Mickey Company headquarters. Um, anyhow, bottom line is we're still using that little sentence right. that was a negotiation of the moment. We're using that language right. from 2001. Right. That's, that's like you our can't North even find. Star. Right. That's like our North Star for how do we fund elections? Well, let's see what they came up with in March of, 20, you know, of 2001. Oh, okay, I guess that sort of applies to this or that. We want, you know, It's almost like you know, reading back to the Federalist paper. Right. What, what do the framers of the Constitution mean here? It's just, it, it's silly. It's silly. And of course, <laughs> and of course, I mean, as you can imagine, since 2001, we've had a lot of new technologies. Sure. And that sentence, again, uncodified language, it's been interpreted in different ways. So right. when it comes to maybe new equipment that wasn't even feasible in 2001, sure. it's like, well, is this count? Is that what they were right. talking about? And the answer is, depends on who you talk to. <laughs> so, so I think it's really important 
that we shore that up and that we get that in your red book that you have on your bookshelf, that there is a list of, okay, here's what counts as a 50-50 cost share, here's what doesn't. And that way everybody understands what's going on, what kind of funds are going to be obliged at the state and the local level, and there's no guesswork involved here. It's just black and white, here it is. I think it's important that we we make that clear. So, So we want clarity there and we want state law to make it clear to everybody, if you're going to do this, here's who's paying for it. If you're going to do that, here's who's paying for it. And it's not heat of the moment, seat of the pants kind of stuff, which is how we've been doing this for literally 20 years and arguably a lot longer. Right. And, and again, it's it's a partnership. It should be transparent. Everybody should understand exactly what they're talking about and what it means for your county, for your jurisdiction. If you're a taxpayer, you should be able to look this up and right. see exactly where the money's coming from. So I think it makes a lot of sense from a transparency standpoint. And also, again, back to that partnership that we've been talking about, I think it makes sense on both sides to just sort of have the guidelines written out right in front of you so there are no questions from the state or from the counties when it comes to that kind of stuff. Okay, so clear guidance on who pays for what. So that's it. Like it's a one-page bill. Okay, maybe there's a little more to this. Right. So, you know, mentioning transparency. I mean, so if you're a nerd like we are and you tune into the Board of Public Works meetings where they're approving all kinds of contracts and you have all the state agencies coming in and saying, this is what we need. Here's the vendor that we're going to use. Oftentimes, the State Board of Elections, when they come in and they ask for money to buy equipment or to go into a contract, it says, how are you going to pay for it? And there are these two words there, special funds. Mm, And what special funds means is we're going to send the counties the bill for it. But at the Board of Public Works, nobody's really looking at, okay, they must have money somewhere in some account, right? That's what special funds means. No, it means that we're going to send the counties a bill. So I think- We see the same thing in the budget process before the general assembly, Sure, absolutely, you do. So there have been initiatives in the elections area where- the entire description is this is funded half state general funds and half special, special funds. funds without a paragraph that says, by the way, this is an invoice to your account. Right. And if you <laughs> saw special funds, I mean, to me, that would mean, OK, you have funding from the yeah, feds or you have money somewhere else. Somewhere else. It's, right. It's, I mean, I, mean I, I don't want to dismiss the way we do budgets, sure. but like your principal job in managing state finances is the the state's general fund has to balance. Mm -hmm. And typically you think of special funds as Mm self-sufficient. Like, like there is, there's a, there's a program for licensing of various professionals and all the professionals pay a fee. It goes into the special fund and that pays for the people who do the testing and administration and bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. So as far as you're concerned as a budgeteer, special funds, that's not a problem. It takes care of itself. And so it's tempting to say, well, oh, fine, okay, this thing's going to be paid for by special funds or half by special funds. Sounds great. Check the box. We, as the counties, would like to see that followed up by, and by special funds, we mean... Here's what it's going to cost each county. Here's a breakdown for everybody to see right out in the open. And so I think, again, transparency there when we're making these decisions, particularly, again, when you're obliging county funds, it really should be transparent. It should be written out. Everybody should be able to look at it and say, oh, here's what special funds means, and here's what it means for my county. Here's the dollar amount that we're going to be asked to come up with to do whatever they want to do. And, and our ask here is not that the state stop sharing costs with, with counties, stop this 50-50. We're not trying to move all these expenses onto the state budget and away from the counties. That's not necessary. I mean, we we might prefer that. Sure. But, but as a practical matter, what we're trying to say is 
all this stuff should be out in the light of day where all the decision makers understand what they're dealing with. And when you sign off to approve something, it should be clear, okay, when we do this, we're sticking the counties with an expense that they didn't budget for last year. So they'll need to accommodate that. Right. And I I think that's just, that's good government, right? Again, it's transparency, it's openness. Again, it's that partnership from both sides Mm -hmm. where let's just put it all on the table so everybody can look at the same thing. On along those same lines, you know, you talk about large procurement decisions and administrative decisions, again, that aren't necessarily made with local input. And there are a lot of examples where the state has wanted to do something and our local boards of elections will come to us, the administrators will say, you know, we had this great vendor that we really would have used here in our county. We have a relationship with them. We know they do good work, but the state made this decision without any local input. And maybe somebody else knows about a vendor that they didn't have a good experience with and that the state has ultimately chosen. They never had a venue to say, here's what we think. Here's what would work for us. Here's what we think you should be doing, what you should be considering, especially because we're going to have to do this on the ground level. Those kind of decisions, again, if this is a true partnership, you should bring everybody to the table and at least consider input. And so I think that's something else we'll be looking for is if the state's going to enter into large contracts or procurements, counties should be there. There should be an opportunity for that local input before a final decision is made. And again, that way, everybody has had their voice heard. There's transparency in the process. Everybody understands what's happening. I think that's really important, especially, again, when you're obliging taxpayer funds. Counties need to be accountable to their taxpayers about where this money is going and why it's going there. So so the partnership we're seeking here is not just a not in name only, but in process. Sure. We think local input into these decisions will yield to better decisions and surely will yield to better local buy. Mm-hmm. And both of those are an advantage. And better accounting, right, right. for taxpayer funds. It's, sure. it's really important that we can answer those questions. Yeah. And then, you know, there's another interesting twist. I think this is pretty unique to Maryland. It goes back eons, right? And a lot of the election employees in Maryland, even though they work for the local boards of election, they're actually state employees and they're in the state merit system. The state decides how much they're going to make. The counties are responsible for paying the salary ultimately. Right. So again, you have a situation where the state is making a decision on their own personnel, but then they're sending the county the bill and the county has had no input on whether or not there should be a raise or whether or not you should reclassify someone. And then your taxpayers knock on the door and say, hey, I see you gave the local boards of election their employees a raise. That's great. Can you tell me why? Can you tell me where the money's right. going to come from? Right. Why did you decide to do this? And right. you're standing there with your with nope. your hands in the air. We right. don't know because the state told us to. Right. We just have to pay the bill. Right. So I, I, you know, I think there it's another weird quirk, but it's something that we need to work out and figure out again as a partner how we handle that moving forward. So, so this is where one of the rough spots in this idea of the state sets the policy and it's implemented locally and funded locally. Here's sometimes where the rub shows up, and that is when the state says, we're going to reclassify a bunch of positions. There may be a perfectly rational decision to do that, Mm -hmm. but when they do that with a stroke of a pen and the effect on the state is effectively zero and the effect on the county is material, then you have a disconnect. The decision is being made in one place. The, The effect is somewhere else. And, and lying in the deep background here is a string of court cases where if a county says we don't want to fund one of these state functions, like your liquor board, like right. your election board and so forth, these are state functions that are funded by the county. If you cut the budget of your election board, they go to court, 
and they win. Right. That's the history is the state courts have basically said, this is a state function. You just got to pay up. Mm-hmm. And even if county is saying, we're, we're asking every agency to cut their budget 7%, so we want elections to do that too. They don't have to do that. And, and as you said, I mean, if you want to reclassify employees or, or maybe people, you know, they, they, they need to make more money because you can't recruit people, that may be all well and fine. But again, you're obliging county funds and essentially the county is just getting a notice in the mail saying, by the way, here's what you're going to have to budget now. We gave everybody a raise. You didn't right. have any input, but you can explain it to your residents right. or you can't, right? So that's all we're asking is, again, if the state wants to give raises to its employees, then it should fund those raises. It makes sense. The counties, we understand that we fund elections. We, we have that obligation, as you mentioned. But if this is a state personnel, there is no accountability at the county level. We can't go and explain to our taxpayers why we decided to reclassify or give a raise. If the state wants to do that, they should handle it. They should pay for it. Okay, so on the theme of partnership and more buy-in, I I think this is all hitting similar notes, all all these components. And then, you know, on that theme again, partnership, this is a big one. You know, we often hear about federal funds coming down to support elections, particularly right now, right, with CARES funds and all these acronyms, bills flying around in Congress, none of which probably will pass. (laughs) But there's been a lot of talk, especially with the pandemic, of federal funding coming down to the states to help with elections. That money theoretically should be split with the state and the counties because, again, we're running the elections at the local level. But the state has the authority to decide how much of that federal money they want to let flow through to the counties and how much they'd like to keep at the state level. Right. And, you know, we think it makes sense as true partners to, to make it very clear that if that money comes down, it should be split 50-50 like the true partners that we are. This is one of these issues where you can talk in vague terms about transparency and so forth, but I'm, I'm serious. How many members of the budget committees of the General Assembly or how many of the budget officers you work with in the counties could give you even a decent answer of what federal money for elections has been shared with the counties versus has been kept by the state? And I think the answer is nobody at all. Right. I think you'd be really hard pressed to find anybody who could come up with that answer. So, I mean, you, someone could send a letter and then I suspect the, the capable people who work for the State Board of Elections would come come together with, here's a seven-page report that explains what we've done at these seven different times we had to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Here's why we did this and here's the way we distributed that. But it's not out in the, out in the open. It's not guided by clear law. So it's kind of like back to that 50-50 split. Put it in the law. This is how it ought to work. And if there's an exception to the rule, maybe you have a kick out from the law. Sure, do that all sure. the time. So. Right. It, it makes sense, right? And, and again, asking the state to also tell us, you know, how much federal money do you have and in which accounts is that money in, right? We've heard even state board members saying, well, don't we still have HAVA funds left over from way back in 2001? And it's kind of nobody really knows. I'm sure people know. It's just not easily accessible to identify what money we already have, right. where it is, and why it's not being used at the state or the local right. level. Yeah. And then there's then the, there's like mysterious funds coming from the, the fair election campaign right. fund, whatever the, whatever the right. term is. But right. you know, people have check boxes and said they wanted money to go for mm-hmm. A, B, and C and may or may not. Right. And, and, and look, I'm sure, again, I'm sure people know exactly they have an accounting of that. It's just not very easy to find. So I think, you know, shoring this up a little bit in state law, making everything very clear makes sense here, both from the partnership standpoint, transparency standpoint. And then, of course, securing our elections is also mm. a big deal. Right. And we are now in 2020 and we know that cybersecurity is a big deal, right? And you hear about election systems getting hacked or allegedly being hacked. 
And so I think Mako is interested in making sure that on the state board of elections, you have some cybersecurity experts there just to make sure that, again, concerns from the local uh, IT folks are being heard, but also representing the state interest in making sure that we are protected and that we're taking the, the measures that we need to take to, to make sure that we have a safe and secure election. That flows down again to the counties because we're ultimately running the election. So I think to have somebody there who's plugged in and has that voice is really important as we move forward. And that's going to be a part of Mako's conversation with this initiative. So as, as part of decision making, think about the modern conduct of elections. Right. It's a different process than giant sheets of of, you know, ballots with markers on them. That's right. right. That's <laughs> so right. That's, that's a different game. And and this probably fits back into things that we've been talking about as far as who's responsible for these various things. Mm-hmm. If you need if you need to have cybersecurity elements in your local plan, who, who chooses that, who pays for it and so forth. I mean, I think all this st- stuff comes back together as a s- strong, modern real partnership between the state and the local actors to make sure we're delivering on a fundamental promise of our democracy. We want to have free, fair, secure elections to serve every Marylander. That's that's the goal. And I think when you talk about IT, you talk about any decision that is made, I think you need to have that lens at the table, right? For someone who's saying, you can do that, but let me tell you what it's going to mean for security. Let me right. tell you what we're going to need to do if you want that to work. I think that's important, especially as we move forward and hackers become way more capable. This stuff is really complicated. I think it's important if we're going to if we're going to do something with elections, if we're going to rethink how we administer and fund them, this is the time to make sure we have the property security measures in place as well. And it's it's a little it, this isn't it's not a one of a kind idea. I'm thinking at the moment of the the state has a pension board that oversees and, 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 you know, nominally, they sort of oversee the investments and the strategy of a pension fund. And, and that, that's fine. That's an important job. But you see the membership of the pension board actually has a variety of stakeholders who are there to say, hold on, let's what, what about this? So the idea of cyber is a big enough part of running elections and managing that data that they need to have, they did not just be invited to the party, but they're like on the, they're one of the hosts. Right? That's right. And I think, I think we really have to have them as a host right. moving forward as new technology advances. They, they need to be there. They need to be the host. Okay. So, so got our finger in the pot in multiple different ways here. We care about elections a lot. It's a meaningful part of the county budget and responsibility. So tie it all together for our listeners what is MAKO after in the 2021 session? So we will be advocating to codify that 20-year precedent that you heard about earlier, that uncodified language, that voting machines and related system be a split funding responsibility between the state and the counties. We would like the state to fund salary increases for its employees. And we want to make sure that proper local input is considered for large contract or procurement decisions that oblige county funds. This is all about partnership. Back to that theme. Right. We want to be true partners in elections. I think we're operating right now under an archaic system when it comes to how we administer elections. If you look at other states, and that's not a knock on the state board. It's just I think we need to do some updating. The perfect example, again, is that 20-year-old uncodified language that we're still using to make big decisions that moves money around at the state and the county level. I think it makes sense. It's a partnership. It's about transparency and making sure that we have safe and secure elections, that everybody has that opportunity to show up on Election Day and feel satisfied and secure with their vote. So that's what it's about. We all want it to work, and we think we can update the laws to make sure it works better. All right, Kevin. Well, you've sold me. 
And apparently you've sold the leadership of the Maryland Association of Counties because earlier today, as part of them adopting our slate of top priorities for the 2021 legislative sessions, they agreed this needs to be on that list. So this will be one of our top legislative initiatives for the year ahead. So uh, I look forward to working with you on it. I think it's I think it's an important issue. It's one that takes a little bit of explaining, but once you get people through the basics, um, I think it's hard to deny this partnership needs a little refreshing. It's a, it's a good idea. And Michael, we're going to come back in the next few weeks and talk about the other initiatives that were adopted today by our legislative committee, right? That's going to be the plan moving forward here. Yeah, so, so anticipate some conversation about public health issues and about broadband We'll see how much we get into into you know budget stuff that may be more ripped from the headlines than talking about our initiative. But all that stuff will be on deck in the weeks ahead. I'm looking forward to that. And I don't know after last week's conversation about the nuts and bolts of the 21 session, I'm already got my my gears turning a little bit. Already you know looking forward to a session, whatever that's going to be, whenever that is. But yeah, I'm excited to talk broadband, public health for sure. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to you. You can follow along as we present our initiatives. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But that'll do it for today. For Michael, this is Kevin signing off. We will talk to you soon.